here. And turn in your chapter 3. For those that are visiting, we have been going systematically through the book of Revelation. And uh, the second and third chapters is comprised of seven letters to seven churches, one to each church, all within a radius of about uh, 50 miles on the tip of the peninsula of what is now modern-day Turkey, often known as the seven churches of Revelation. And in each one, the Lord Jesus has his own personal comments to that church. In fact, he characterizes in a few words uh, each church. He, he, he uh, encapsulates the characteristics of each church and often commends, often rebukes, and gives a warning and a promise. And so, uh, if you look at, I think everybody has a chart now, is that right? Uh, the, the churches go down the left side, and the names are on the left in order. The meaning of the name, I haven't uh, done a lot with that. Some commentators like to make a big thing about the meaning of the, of the names. And there seems to be a loose correspondence sometimes between the meaning of the name of the church and its characteristics. Um, for example, Smyrna, particularly, uh, that word you're not familiar with, but you're familiar with the word myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were the three gifts to the Lord Jesus. Myrrh is a bitter plant, and uh, in Scripture, it's always associated with, with suffering. And certainly, that was the suffering church. Uh, you see on the right-hand column, uh, we might summarize the church at Smyrna as the persecuted church. We talked about that. Uh, similarly, Laodicea, it's, it's interesting. We haven't seen that one yet, but that's, of course, the picture of the church in the last days. And uh, it's, it's pretty much given up spiritual things by then. And it's interesting that the word does mean the people rule. Isn't that interesting? There are a few other interesting correspondences in the names. Um, anyway, then, as I said, in each letter there tends to be a vision of Christ. He reveals himself in a certain way. And as we've been saying, how he revealed himself to that church ties in with what he has to say to that church. So I've summarized that. Then uh, you'll notice there's a commendation in every church but one the church at Laodicea, which, Lord willing, we'll look at this month. Uh, there's a rebuke for every church and a warning, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia. Interesting. And in every case, there's a promise to overcomers. And then finally, in the right-hand column, uh, as we've been going through this, we have uh, noted the correspondence that there seems to be between the order of the churches and the chronological history of the church since the day of Pentecost through to the rapture. Those dates are very, very rough, of course. Uh, for example, the mark of 300 between uh, Smyrna and Pergamos is, is arbitrary. Actually, if you want to pick a date, it would be the uh, Declaration of Constantine of the Christian Church, you know, becoming the, the state church, which I think was a little after 300. So we come in our study now to... Uh, the fifth book, out of this, the pardon me, the sixth church, uh, the fifth church out of the seven, which is Sardis, and uh, we'll begin in Revelation chapter th three, and we'll read the first six verses. Now, my Bible has a header here; it calls it the dead church. Here, uh, in my paper, I've called it the lifeless church. Not a lot of difference there. No life means dead, but that indeed is the situation. So we come to a low point, really in the churches here when we come to Sardis. 
And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wonderful section of the Word of God, Revelation 2 and 3. We have seven churches, seven different spiritual conditions, all the way from healthy to sick, from from prospering spiritually to spiritually dead. Uh, Good application to a church today and to our individual lives as well. And as I said, we come to Sardis. It's really a a low point in uh, the catalog of churches here, the lowest being Laodicea. It's a lifeless church. It begins, by the way, if you notice, with a condemnation. Now, if you've been paying attention, that's, that's a break in the pattern. Every time until now, in all four churches, the Lord Jesus began, I, I know your works, and he would then list a commendation. He, he would list the positive things in the life of the church. He doesn't begin that way here. He begins with a very strong statement. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. It's a church that... Uh, You know, what's the expression we have in name only? Well, they were a church in name only. They were Christians in name only. These were people who professed to know Jesus, but didn't. They had no life in them. And it's significant, uh, as in many of the other churches where the Lord Jesus declares a judgment, the picture that we have of him here is a picture of a judge. It says... Um, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, let's address um, this issue of the seven spirits of God, first of all. You've noticed as we've gone through the book of Revelation, I promised you before we begin, we're going to have a lot of difficult passages in here. Uh, this is a veritable minefield for the untutored in the Word of God. And we're going to have several of them today. I'm sure several of you picked up on the blotting out in the name of life. We'll talk about that one later. But it's God's inspired word, and it's, it's faultless. So let's take on this uh, subject. It's really quite instructive when we understand the significance of it, when it says uh, he has the seven spirits of God. There's only one Holy Spirit. God is one. God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why does he say seven spirits? Remember, I said at the beginning that much of the language in Revelation is symbolic. And so here, clearly, in the light of the rest of the teaching of Scripture, it's symbolic. He is speaking of the Spirit of God, and he uses the number of seven to teach us something. There is one Spirit. Ephesians says we are baptized in one Spirit. Right? Why does he say seven spirits? Well, first of all, it's uh, significant, the number seven. In fact, 
We just had a quiz on it last week from Mr. McDonald. The number seven in the scripture signifies completion. And so rather than four, five, or six, which mean other things in the Bible, he chooses to speak of the Holy Spirit of God as symbolized by the number seven. Talking about his completeness, his fullness. And it's interesting, there's a passage in the Old Testament, and we'll look at it, it's in Isaiah chapter 11, where God speaks of the Holy Spirit, and he has, guess how many titles? Seven. All associated, by the way, with judgment. Interesting. And here in this picture of judgment, the Lord Jesus is said to have the seven spirits of God. It's Isaiah chapter 11. I'll read uh, the whole passage because it's, it's talking about the Lord Jesus. It's a messianic prophecy. You know, the, many of you believers know this first part. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. You recognize that. It's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. Now listen. Here are the seven titles of the Spirit of God. One, the Spirit of the Lord. The first title shall rest upon him. The Spirit of Wisdom. Number two, the spirit of understanding, three, the spirit of counsel, four, and might, five, the spirit of knowledge, six, and the fear of the Lord, seven. Isn't that interesting? And now in the context here, of course, the Holy Spirit himself does more than the act of judgment, but here God um, stresses that aspect of the spirit of God because he goes on to say, talking of the Messiah who is full of the Spirit. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Aren't you glad I am? He judges righteously, huh? But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So you might make a little note in your Bible under Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, go back to Revelation now. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. I believe that's a strong link in the Scripture. This, this uh, phrase, the seven spirits of God, occurs elsewhere. We've already seen it in chapter 1. But again, it's a symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit of God. And here, stressing uh, judgment just a, a note, uh, we go, we're going, as you know, word by word through the scripture here. So we'll take this phrase. It says that he has this, these seven stars. Now, if you've been paying attention previously, it said that he had the seven stars in his hand. And the seven stars, remember, were the messengers uh, to the various churches. And the stars are also representative of the churches. So previously, uh, when he had said that he had the stars in his right hand, it was to the church at Ephesus. Uh, it, it was a closer relationship. He, he really did have lordship over that church. And we're going to contrast Ephesus with Sardis as we go through this. Here it says he has it. I think that's significant. And you'll see as we go through uh, the difference between this church and Ephesus. Okay, but here is the chilling phrase. He says, I know your uh, works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. They had a profession of reality, but no true life. Interesting that uh, in the previous churches, 
there were a few places where he talked about unbelievers in the midst, and they were in the minority, if you remember. Here, as we're going to see, the true believers are in the minority in this so-called church. What was it like? Well, one commentator describes the situation at, at Sardis at that time in this way. The people of Sardis were idolaters. They worshipped the mother god, Sibeli. Her worship was of the most debasing character, and orgies like those of Dionysus were practiced at the festivals held in her honor. Sins of the foulest and darkest impurity were committed on those occasions, and when we think of a small community of Christians rescued from such abominable idolatry, living in the midst of scenes of the grossest depravity, with early associations, that is, old friendships, and companionships and connections, all exerting a force in the direction of heathenism, it may be wondered that the few members of the church in Sardis were not drawn away altogether and swallowed up in the great vortex. It was uh, a city rife with immorality, and uh, these believers coped with that, many of them, probably most of them being saved out of a lifestyle like that. Sounds like the Bay Area in 1999, doesn't it? You may be sitting here this morning saying, oh, well, I mean, that's, that was back in the pagan days, you know, when they were uncivilized. Times have changed. We're more civilized today. Is that right? They didn't have magazines and computers in those days, did they? Today, we have computer pornography. In those days, they satisfied their lusts openly, and everybody knew about it. They couldn't go home to printed material and a, and a uh, video screen that nobody else could see but them in a dark room. Today, pervading, professing Christianity today, no doubt, is the easy accessibility of e-pornography. It's openly distributed uh, discreetly on CD-ROMs, DVDs, videotape. You've got to tap to the internet, just push a button, and there you are. It's hidden. You remember a brother preaching several years ago about a, a deacon who, when he died at a church up in Santa Rosa, they went into his closet and found a stack of pornographic uh, magazines. Even as recently as uh, a few years ago, it was, it was visible, it was touchable, the pornography. Now it's gone. I work with computers. It's a stream of bytes that nobody can see until you run the right program. It's a secret sin. And somehow I think people uh, believe that uh, it's somehow not as bad. Let me tell you, God hates that sin just as much as he hated the sin in Sardis. Maybe worse. So, as we look at this church at Sardis and think of their environment... You might think to yourself, hey, this sounds like today. San Francisco, Hayward, San Leandro, San Lorenzo, 1999. At the Church of Sardis, they had a name that they were alive, but they were dead. No doubt what had happened. There had been uh, the preaching of the gospel, and some had professed, said they were Christians. They had a name. But the bottom line is they weren't really saved. Did you know it's possible to say you're a Christian and not be a Christian? And some of these had professed Christ, but they had no life in them. They were dead. 
And Jesus, with his, his judging eye, his piercing gaze, he examined that church, and he summarized them by saying, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Imagine hearing this letter read. By the way, the, this letter, the book uh, of Revelation, we call it a book, it was a letter. Remember that God gave to John the Apostle on the island of Patmos, and no doubt it somehow made its way back to the mainland from the island, and it was read in all seven churches. Imagine as your church is named, and you want to hear what the Lord Jesus himself has to say. What would it have been like to be at the church of Sardis? You've heard four churches so far that have been listed. You're familiar with them. You know where they are. They're 20, 30 miles away. And in each case, the Lord Jesus has said this phrase, I know your works. And as they come to Sardis, he says unto the angel of the church in Sardis, Right, I know your works. And then a pause. What's he going to say? In all the other cases, there's been a commendation. There's been an encouragement, some approval. And then the reader goes on and says, I know you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And the Lord Jesus doesn't make mistakes. Be watchful, he says. The, the wording really there in verse 2 is, wake up. He's telling them to wake up. They're in a spiritual stupor. He says, strengthen the things which remain, for they are ready to die. The effect of professing unsaved people in a body of believers is devastating. I can tell you that from personal experience. As then, so it is today. A false believer is really a slow drain on the life of the church. There are four ways I have seen this have an effect on churches. The first way a false believer affects the church, as no doubt they were doing here, is the ministry of discouragement. No doubt maybe you've seen the, the case where Someone professes Christ, and uh, the, the believers see this, this person uh, have an enthusiastic testimony. They get baptized. But then, give them a few months, maybe a few weeks, and the testimony dies. And they're back to their old ways. It's discouraging, isn't it? Particularly for the young believers. In fact, in all cases here, the greatest effect in a, in a church of false believers is upon the young and the weak believers. Because they look to these people as fellow believers. And one day they wake up and find out that it was false. And maybe they look to them as an example. Maybe something they said encouraged them, you know. And they turn around one day and find out that, uh, as God says elsewhere about false teachers, they're like the dog, they prefer to turn to their vomit. It's a, it's a shock. The second way is it's interesting that false believers have a leavening effect, like 1 Corinthians 5, on a body. If someone says they're a Christian, but they really don't have the Holy Spirit of God in them, there's really no deterrent for engaging in sin. You see, a true believer does. And what often happens is a false believer begins to engage in things that a Christian just shouldn't do. And a dear, well-meaning other, particularly a young believer, will look at this person and say, well, if he can do it, I guess I can too. And it just brings down the spiritual temper, temperature 
of a church in general. You get that picture here. It says they're ready to die. You get this picture. The church is slowly dying off from this, this infect effect. Uh, another effect that uh, false believers often have on a church, bitterness, grievances, uh, offenses, even division often arises as a result of the ministry of unsaved but professing people. And, it, and it's often as a result, by the way, if a person is not really saved and as time goes on it becomes clear that they're not, generally a well-meaning brother or sister will come up and, and try to show that to them from the Word of God. And unfortunately what often happens is they get offended and they begin to uh, spread gossip. You know, brother so-and-so, you know about them. You know what they said to me? You know. Fourthly, the uh, lifestyle of a professing unbeliever undermines that church's testimony to the world. And the world is justified in saying there are too many hypocrites in the church. Because that's exactly what they are. That's the situation at the church, so-called, at Sardis. The Lord Jesus says, you have a name that you're alive, corporately and certainly individually, but you're dead. Now, let me say something here. You know, we use this phrase every once in a while as believers. We talk about a false profession. People who make false professions or who say they're Christians who really aren't, they're not out deliberately to deceive people. You need to understand that. We're not talking about bad people here, you know, who are out to undermine churches and that sort of thing. A, a, a person who thinks they're saved and not generally is very sincere about it. But the bottom line is, it's an interesting thing. You can't fake being a Christian. You know, when a person really gets saved, God does something, you see? And he either does something or he doesn't. And if he's done that work, it's interesting. Every time that person begins to love Jesus, whom they've never seen. First Peter, whom having not seen, you love. They love other believers. It's a natural thing, you know? They love the Word of God. They love to please the Lord. Obedience uh, generally is not a, a heavy burden, but it's a desire out of love to please Him. You see, you can't fake those kind of things. It has to be a, a work of God. And until one has really been changed, transformed, born again by the Spirit of God Himself, you really don't know what it's like. And someone will pray prayers or raise their hand in a meeting, do various things, and you know they're told, well, that's what you need to do, and, and they don't know any better. But the bottom line is one can have a name that they're alive and be dead. They have no concept of things like Paul says, the love of Christ constrains us. You know what that's like? To be constrained by the love of Christ? Not your love for Him, but His love for you. The picture of being limited in your behavior. You know? Not, I can't do this, and I can do that, or I should do this. But constrained by the love of Christ. You see. Well, this, this was unknown, really, in Sardis. No doubt, in most cases, there was an initial burst of enthusiasm, but it's faded. The Christian life was boring. It was too hard. And they returned to their old pleasures and their old lifestyles. Jesus says their works are imperfect. He didn't say that we hadn't found them perfect before God. The word there literally is they're lacking. 
And it's interesting, you see this phenomenon in so-called churches today. Um, in order to, to simulate life, life, what's that? Well, that's activity. That's noise. <laughs> and so, the louder the, the, the music and the heavier the beat, or the emotional frenzy, you have lots of laughs, great entertainment, you know? Hey, that preacher told a good one today. That's life. That's artificial. You see? That's life is the way the world sees it. But that's not the true life that only the Spirit of God can impart. And it was gone in the church at Sardis. No doubt they had brought in, just as it is today, the ways of the world into the church to try to simulate life. But it was fake. And Jesus, with his piercing glaze, saw through it and revealed it for what it was. You know, the early church, let's get back to the old-fashioned church, you know, God's way, Acts 2, they devoted themselves. The Christians, listen, devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word, the study of the Word, the sharing of the Word one-on-one, talking about the Word with each other. Our lives permeated with the Word of God. It wasn't that uh, when Jesus designed the church, you know, He said, all right, here are four thou shalt. You're going to do these four things. It was that the Spirit of God changed their lives from within. And suddenly they couldn't get enough of the Word of God. It's just a symptom of a Christian. Fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. That's what they devoted themselves to. And that's what a real Christian, you know that, will get excited about those things. That's what God said. You can't fake that. It's, it's, it's interesting how each of these have been perverted today, and no doubt we're in the church of Sardis. First of all, the Apostles' Doctrine, the preaching of the Word, ho-hum, that's the first thing that's gone. Right? Sure it is. Don knows the tape he, he, he turned me on to, and it was an ABC special. The phrase they use over and over again where they're criticizing preaching, they call it the talking head. The talking head. You've got to do with the talking head. People don't want talking heads anymore. Is that the criterion for what you do in church? People don't want it anymore? I'd say people never wanted it. So that goes. Prayer goes out. The prayer meeting, that's the first meeting to go, really. You know, you know it's, it's, that's the most difficult thing, even for believers. I'll confess it. it. That's where the battle is. That's where the front line is, man. If you want to meet the devil and all his consorts, get down on your knees and start praying. Much less for an unsaved person to do that. So that goes. Breaking of bread goes, and um, we retain uh, a, a simulation of that with this word worship. Okay? And of course, worship is the word that's applied in the church, quote unquote, to the times when the preacher gets up and tells the good jokes. Or we have a, an exciting dramatic play, or the, the band plays some neat music. That's the worship service. No concept of the one-on-one personal relationship of a believer expressing to the one he loves how much he loves him, which is what breaking of bread was meant to be. It's gone. And of course you understand why. If I don't have that personal relationship, breaking of bread is going to be a meaningless meeting to me, you see. Ho-hum, boring. So we retain breaking of bread in, the, in, in this new word, worship, which applies to any activity the church does. And, of course, the other word, as you know, it's overworked, is fellowship. That's preserved, but it's nothing like what it was in the, in the Bible. Fellowship today, 
and as no doubt it might have been used in Sardis, is um, you know more than one Christian being in the same place at the same time, doing something together, having fun. That's fellowship. That wasn't what it was in the New Testament. It was believers sharing what they have in common, beginning with the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for Him. Man, today it's, you know, one or more people who say they're Christians having fun together. That's fellowship. Right? And, of course, you overworked that verse in Matthew 18 to death to, to justify. Didn't he say, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them? It's got to be fellowship. Jesus didn't mean that at all when he said that. He didn't mean that when somebody, just because somebody says they're a Christian, guess what somebody else that says they're a Christian and have fun? That's fellowship. In fact, I hate to tell you, if you look at that in context, he's talking about church discipline there. He's talking about when church leaders get together and agree concerning a, a, a topic. And he's encouraging the, the, the uh, men when they make a difficult decision. Hey, I'm with you on it. Let me tell you, it's tough to do something like that. And it's good to hear that Jesus is with us. That's what that verse is talking about. The church at Sardis. It sounds like something I know today. So, Sardis. Jesus cares about the church. He is the shepherd. And he not only gives the diagnosis of the problem, but the remedy. Praise God. He always does that. He doesn't just go around, you know, like some people do, criticizing, but with no help. He always gives the remedy. And so he does here. And it's interesting what he says. He says, verse 3, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Very similar to Ephesus, but there's a big difference. In Ephesus, he used the same word, remember. But in Ephesus, he said, you need to go back to the first works. Why? Because they'd lost their first love. What he was telling Ephesus, they were believers. They were true believers, but they were loveless believers. So they didn't go back and get saved, but they needed to go back. You remember when, you know what it's like when you're first saved and all you can talk about is Jesus? All you can think about is Jesus? You know? Whether they want to hear it or not, you're going to tell them. That first love. Ephesus had left it behind. It often happens to us too, doesn't it? And Jesus says, you remember how you used to love me? Remember? Go back to that first love. But he doesn't say that here to Sardis. You see, because it was never there. They weren't saved. And so what he says basically is go back to the message you heard, which was the gospel. Hang on to that and repent. You see, that's what the problem was. They'd never turned from their sin. They had never really given up their lifestyle. And no matter what you want to hear or what you may hear today, Jesus is still the same as he was in the days uh, when the Bible was written. Yeah, you have to give up your lifestyle if you want Jesus. He wants your life. He doesn't want to be a band-aid. And uh, he goes on with this warning about the thief. You know, Jesus is going to come for everyone. What I mean by that is, you're going to meet Jesus no matter who you are. Whether you're a Christian or not. 
But that moment, whether it comes as death or he returns visibly, in either case, you're going to be one of two groups. It's either going to be a surprise and he's going to come as a thief and you're not going to like it. Or it's going to be the joy of your soul and you're going to welcome him with open arms. And here, for the, for the people of Sardis in general, it's going to be like a thief. You know, I was thinking about this. It's interesting, you know, maybe you've lived through a, a very traumatic moment in your life. I have. Most people have. And, uh, you know, you're, you're never ready for it, are you? Like um, October 17th, 1979. You know, the World Series was on. The Bay Area teams were playing. People got up in the morning. It was like any other day. Nobody realized what was about to hit them in the afternoon about 5 o'clock. Isn't that interesting? You know, we don't know. That's good. God spares us from that, isn't it? You know, man, I'm glad I didn't know 10 years in advance when something like that's going to happen. That's all I think about. But it's interesting. When suddenly it came, I remember I was on the phone talking to Howard Ormsby. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the walls started going like this. And uh, Howard had it bad because he was in a place that had temporary walls. They were going like this. And uh, finally, the other end, he says, I'm out of here, click. And he was gone. But, uh, you know, it was, it was a shock. It was sudden. I had a personal experience, July 30th, 1969. I went to work at the Oakland Army base like any other day. Uh, it was a Saturday. I was getting some overtime, so I was happy about that. I figured it'd be just like any other Saturday. Little did I know that there was a, a semi loaded with 40,000 pounds of freight. Uh, what do they call it? A 16-wheeler waiting around a corner for me. 18, thank you. And uh, I thank God for that. I wasn't saved at the time, you know. And God in his mercy didn't take me. He woke me up. He did what he's telling the Sard- Sardisians here. You know, that, that truck was a wake-up call. And after three weeks in the hospital and three months at home, I really begin to review my life and say, I don't know God, you know. I need to find God. So he's warning them, you know, that, that moment is coming for you. I don't care who you are. That moment of seeing Jesus face to face is inevitable. You will not avoid it. Are you ready? More than that, are you longing for it? Okay. I hope so. But you see, for the people like this, who don't know Jesus, it's like, no, not yet, Lord. Please. Not now. Why? Because he's coming as a thief. Why? He's going to take away things. They're in this world. They love this world. And Jesus is going to take that away from them. You see, he's a thief. The good times are going to be gone. He's stealing it from them. How much better, brothers and sisters, huh, to be happy and content with the things of God so that when he comes, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, we don't shrink back in shame. But we say, Lord Jesus, come right now. Take me. should be a welcomed moment. Well, verse 4, um, if you notice on the sheet I handed out, I did include that as a commendation here. See, Sardis commendation, you have a few names who have not defiled their garments. Now, if you look, a lot of commentators will, will actually say, and they may have a point, that uh, Sardis is really like, like Laodicea. There is no commendation. 
It is a very weak one, because it's not addressed to the church at large. This is way down the list. And he says, nevertheless, you have a few. There's just a few who are true believers. So you decide if it's a commendation. Whatever, it's a breath of fresh air. I'll tell you that in this letter. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. As I said before, previously, whenever God addressed the minority, it was the unsaved, the false believers in their midst. Here, the minority is the few believers. If you can imagine what it must have been like at this place for these saints. And I like the way he does it. He talks about their lives from here to verse 5. He uses this picture of garments, you know, clothing. Um, he says, uh, If not defile their garments, they shall walk with me in white. There again the garments. And then in verse 5, He who overcome shall be clothed in white garments. Now, what does he mean here? Uh, if not defile their garments. First of all, you need to understand that in this passage, as in elsewhere in uh, Revelation, generally when he's talking about these white garments, as in, for example, chapter 19, this is not the robe of righteousness that all believers have. That's a single garment. And it's never spoken of in the plural. Here it's always plural. And in 19 he says what it is. He says it's the righteous deeds of the saints. So he's, he's talking about the lives of the believers and that they were living righteous lives. They weren't saved by that. We know that. But it was their lifestyle after being saved, you see. And he says they haven't defiled their garments. The picture here, if you can imagine... Someone is, is professes to be saved, and at that point they have a clean slate. But now here in the situation, those who, uh, it was a false testimony, the lure of the old feasts down at the Sabellian temple are just too great. You know, give them a few weeks, a couple of months, and they're going right back there again, you see. And they've defiled their garments. That clean slate is gone. Now don't misunderstand me, First John 1, 9 holds for true believers when God says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that's, that's a promise. He will cleanse us. But I'll tell you, there is a way in which you can uh, permanently stain your testimony, whether you're saved or not. And in this case, where it was public and all everyone saw, these believers, pardon me, people who said they were saved and went back, you know, that, that's a permanent stain. People see that. They say, you're a Christian? What are you doing here? It becomes known. You see, they've defiled their garments. It's a permanent stain that can't be removed. And so it is with believers. You know, we can have our secret sins. But uh, it, it, God has a way, you know, of making our sins find us out. And there are things that family members know about professing Christians that they'll never forget, try as they might. A husband walks in on a wife, or a wife walks in on a husband. Children. Or that sometimes the church at large will learn. And we can forgive, but we can't forget. We have to admit it. You know, it's a stain, it's a defiling of the garment. And certainly if the world comes to know it, then the, the effect can be devastating. A person can be put on the shelf. 
And that's what he means here, the defiled garments. You see, there were these ones who had kept their garments clean. Their testimony was still spotless. I want that. I trust you do too. A spotless testimony. White garments. It's interesting, this, this, uh, this promise here. He says, um, they shall walk with me in white. Boy, I love that phrase. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You see what he, Jesus says, they shall walk with me in white. He doesn't just say they'll wear white. He says, they'll walk with me. And you get the picture of a, of a closeness there. Of a, of a believer who has consistently lived a pure life for the Lord. Being like Him, you see. And therefore walking with Him. That's the picture. It says in Proverbs, How should two walk together unless they what? Be agreed. That's right. How can I expect to walk with Jesus? You know, like a, a stroll almost in heaven. Unless I'm like Him. Unless we're like-minded. You see? He hates sin and loves righteousness. If He's going to have somebody at His side, it's got to be somebody like that. We shouldn't be surprised at that. First John, He who says He abides in Him ought Himself to do to, so to walk just as He walked. Right? First Peter, you know, that uh, wonderful verse on holiness is quoted out of the Old Testament. Be holy. Why? For I am holy. That's an appeal. I'm like that. Please, you be like that too. If you want to be close to me, if you want to be like me. First John 3, And everyone who has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself. That's right. That's the heart of Jesus, you see. And it's the heart of a true believer. It's there. And it acts its way out in a life of purity and righteousness. Walk with me. He'll walk with me. I like that. Walk with me in white. What a picture. What a wonderful promise. Jesus, Jesus he indicates that he notices his saints. He, he sees these few believers in that cesspool of Sardis. And he notices it. And he encourages them. He, he gives them promises. You know? Hang in there. Keep that garment spotless. Just like today, we're surrounded by easy sin. You know? Probably more than any other time in the history of man. And it means a lot to Jesus when we just say no. It really does. Well, he goes on to talk about the overcomers as he does in the other churches in verse 5. He says, He who overcomes, here's the, here's the garment again, shall be clothed in white garments. It's a pretty picture. The, the, the word clothed there is really have wrapped around him garments. It's like, you know, when the general comes up and pins the medal, you know, on the, on the soldier. The picture is the Lord Jesus coming up and draping that white garment around the faithful saint. That's the picture. Overcomer. The, the word overcomer is, is stressing the idea that, you know, the ones that, that keep on keeping on, that, that faithfully go to the end, they're overcomers. It's a picture of uh, words that are hard on people. Diligence, perseverance, patience, long-suffering, endurance. That's what he's talking about here. You know that being a Christian is hard? Huh? 
Anybody here? Thank you, Norman. Thank you very much. Norman, it's not easy. That's right. If you think it's easy, you better go back and examine your profession. It's not easy to be a Christian. Look at all the people that bail out. Huh? And look at all the uh, people that have struggled that that are believers. I'll tell you, there's a war going on out there. And we're in it. And Jesus is looking for the overcomers, the ones that finish the race. Not just begin it, but finish it. Interesting verse in Romans chapter 1. We'll look at it here real quick. Troubles people a lot because of the way it's uh, written. Probably chapter 2, Romans 2. He's talking about the day when God will judge the world. And he, and he divides mankind into two, two categories here. And there's no middle category. It's interesting. Listen to this. Romans 2, verse 6, Who will render to each one according to his deeds. Talking about God. Number 7, verse 7, Eternal life to those, listen to this, who by patient continuance in doing good. Notice that? Patient continuance. Not a quick start and then a fizzle. Seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And people, they're troubled by that because they think God is teaching you're saved by works. No! What he's saying there is, if you're a believer, it's going to show. These things should characterize your life. As Gene Gibson used to say, used to say thank God for the plotters. Plotters, you know, those that just continually live for the Lord. They're not Roman candles with a big burst of... Uh, you know, light and then nothing. But the ones that faithfully follow the Lord day after day after day. All over the Scripture, God has pictures like that. All through the book of Hebrews, it's a theme. He contrasts those who have that Roman candle effect versus those who are faithful to the end. There's a third group of people. Where do you fit them? You have the person who's self-pleasing a lot of the time, but their life is punctuated by bursts of spiritual activity. Where would you put that person? You know? If you think about it, as I said, you, living the Christian life is hard. It's not for the flesh. <laughs> it's not for the natural man. You can't do it. And if you ever tried, as I have, you find out real fast you run out of gas. Won't happen. And when you have someone like this, it's one of two things. Either they're unsaved and they don't have the Spirit of God, and those little bursts are the flesh, you know, making that effort and finding out real fast you can't do it. Or it's just a, a, a believer who's relying on the flesh and never really understood what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God, living a yielded life to the control of Jesus Christ. Tough place to be in. Well, the Lord Jesus is addressing... Both companies here. And uh, we'll come to that troublesome passage. I told you we were going to take it on here. Here it is. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Uh-oh. What does he mean by that? Can somebody actually be blotted out of the book of life? Well, let me tell you what uh, a lot of commentators do with this. They like to take one or two positions. First of all, they say, well, let me see. It says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Never does he say, I will blot anybody's name out. 
So therefore, it's a, it's a, a hollow threat, you see, because he never will blot anybody's name out. Do you understand that? That's silly, isn't it? That's pretty weak. Why would the Lord Jesus say it if he wasn't going to blot some out? That's right. So come on, let's, let's face the Word of God honestly here, okay? And not play games. The other one is that they will say, well, the book of life is the book of those who have physical life. Well, of course, that's everybody. And uh, Jesus is in the process of blotting out those that aren't ever saved. You like that one? Yeah, I don't like that one either. Because of the use of the, of the book of life elsewhere in Scripture. But we have to face up to it. It's pretty clear that Jesus is blotting names out. Now, you have trouble with that because... You see, we're so used to Revelation 20, where it says, if anybody's name was not found written in the book of life, he's cast in the lake of fire. And so you say, well, therefore, the book of life only has the name of saved people in it, right? That's right, but that's at the point of judgment. Revelation 20 is when it's all said and done. You see, and at that point, the names in the book of life are only true Christians. And it's clear he's blotting somebody out. And I believe the best explanation is that the book of life begins with, in fact, the key is really in this letter. What did he say? He said, you have a name. There's the key. That word, that word name occurs four times in here. You have a name that you are what? Alive. You see. You have a name that you're alive. And I believe that's what the book of life begins as. It's a list of all those who fall within. And here we're into Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. All those who say they're Christians. You see. And the Lord Jesus, thank God, it's the one, he's the one that does it. He blots out the false professors. He does. And so by the time you come to Revelation 20, the only people in there are saved people. And when they open the books to judge the dead, and they open another book, which is called the Book of Life, if anyone's name was not found written in that book, he's cast in the lake of fire. You see. So it is, yes, it's not a hollow threat. But it's a promise, really, to those who follow him, who endure, who exhibit the fact that they are Christians, you see. We're not talking about a loss of salvation. Any place in here. Finally, he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. It's neat. Now, not only does he leave the entry in the book of life, but he personally says, I know him. I know her. They belong to me. You know, they're mine. Wouldn't that be great to hear that? Huh? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that, by the way. It's, it's addressed to everyone. If you have ears, yeah. Noah's working on one right now. But he has an ear. Anybody who has an ear. And even if, of course, he's not talking about physical ears. A person can be deaf and still hear these things, you see. Anybody who hears these things, he says, listen to this. Because there's a lesson in the church of Sardis for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We recognize you this morning as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You're the perfect, righteous judge. And so we ask you, Lord, that you might look upon us. We know you're in our midst this morning as you were in the midst of the churches here in Revelation. Look around, Lord. Look into our hearts, examine us, try us, and see if there be any wicked way in us. We ask it in your name. Amen.